I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted that uh, Gil invited me to talk about a topic which I've uh, been exploring, like many of you, which is uh, which I call the Dharma of difficult people. And some of you may not have known the theme for this evening. But what I want to do this time and next time is to encourage you to see yourself as being in spiritual training with the difficult people in your lives. And so what I want to do tonight is to give a kind of introduction to that theme and probably talk about uh, 25 minutes or so and leave about uh, 15 minutes for questions and discussion. But in my 25 minutes, I want to give you some guidelines for, if you so choose, to uh, take as a theme of practice in the next week your interactions with difficult people, should they appear. (laughs) (laughs) And probably it is the case that even if you don't have difficult people seem to appear you yourself may sometimes be a difficult person for yourself. So that should cover it. So if you so choose to uh, work with this theme, uh, we could then uh, talk further next week and uh, also could be some impetus for uh, working with this theme, hopefully over the next two weeks in a way that could bring this uh, dimension of practice further into your own uh, repertoire. That's my hope. So what I want to do is to talk uh, this evening uh, about three aspects of uh, taking difficult people as your practice, as our practice. And first I want to talk about the way that uh, it's possible to take our encounters with difficult people rather than as a starting point for cursing and blaming, but rather to take it as a moment to say, oh, time for spiritual practice. So I want to talk about that theme first. Then I want to talk about what we actually find when we look closely at our experience of difficult people. When we bring mindfulness to our experience of difficult people, what do we actually find? And then thirdly, a few guidelines for working with difficult people as, um, as practice. But first, I'd like to do a very brief uh, guided meditation. And I'd like you to reflect just for a minute or two on any difficult people that you might have encountered recently. And you can wheel we'll leave difficult undefined for the moment. But I think you know what this means. People that you, um, that are actually difficult. They bring up different difficult experiences for you. So just reflect if there have been some recent difficult people and what that dynamic is like. You might have an image of the person, maybe of concrete situations. Maybe also look at what the particular dynamic is that's difficult for you. 
So let me talk first of all, using this uh, guided meditation somewhat as background, to talk first of all about uh, the shift that happens when we start to take uh, difficult people as starting points for practice. And I have to say that the reason that I'm interested in this topic and the reason that I've uh, actually excited by it is because of my own experience learning with difficult people. Never by choice. <laughs> That's how it is, right? And so I w- I've been particularly um, interested in the last five years or so when I've had some encounters with people that have been, in, and particularly people, in my experience, with people who are in positions of power in relation to me, that were quite difficult, that were, that basically, um, I found myself being triggered and reactive. And yet, with help from several mentors, and these were sort of long-term experiences, and I was thinking, I'm thinking particularly of one one uh, relationship that um, lasted over several years where I was in a position of it, within, the, within the power hierarchy of an institution, I was uh, considerably lower down. In fact, in fact, this was the president of an institution. <laughs> and I found myself interacting with him and it being very difficult. I, I believed that he was not listening to me. Other people corroborated that at times. <laughs> but nonetheless, nonetheless, what I experienced was that I would, uh, when I wasn't being, when I thought and felt that I wasn't being listened to, something happened internally that it seemed to trigger something, you know, perhaps, perhaps old, where I tended to think this person is not listening to me um, why is he president? And, I tend- <laughs> and so forth. And, I, and because, of course, the institution had these very idealistic um, mission and value statements, and they seem to be connected with, one would presume, with an ability to listen. Uh, you know, partly concerned with the training of therapists and so forth. So I'm not naming any names. And... And so uh, I would become somewhat uh, judgmental. And I, as I explored this more, I found that I tended to uh, be judgmental and withdraw, really withdraw from the interaction, even though I was still there, uh, with uh, a presumption of moral superiority. <laughs> a few of you may know this, this uh, tendency yourself. Some of you probably intimately. <laughs> and, and so I found myself doing that. And, I, and when, when that happened, I would be judgmental. And I actually wasn't able to function that well. You know, I would, it would sort of be paralyzing, you know, if you know that kind of situation. And over the course of a number of months and years, I tried to explore that dynamic and found myself over time able to really use that experience as a starting point for learning and a way of really inquiring into what was happening internally 
what the patterns were that were underneath the reactivity. And over time, I grew able, or I should say more able, in that dynamic to uh, not be so reactive and to come through to be able to um, still see what I was seeing, but interact more, more fully with the person. It was a difficult situation because there was power involved because it must have triggered something very basic. And most of our difficult people experiences do something like that, I think. They are difficult for us because they trigger something that's quite deep in us and they are uh, chronic. They, they go over, they happen for a certain amount of time. We find ourselves typically reacting in the same way. Well, I'll get in a moment to what we actually find when we look more carefully, but I just wanted to establish that. For me, this has been important because it's been a powerful kind of learning, and I can also think of many other situations of learning from interacting with difficult people. Of course, this goes against the normal tendency, which is to somehow think that uh, difficult people are the problem and we should, they should, the, the solution is to actually get rid of them rather than to rather than to inquire. In Buddhist tradition, there actually is a, a long tradition of seeing difficult people as being important for one's spiritual practice. Uh, in the uh, Majjhima Nikaya, uh, some of you who, who study this may know the simile of the saw, and there's an amazing uh, story in there where the Buddha tells a story about a maid named uh, Vedahika, who has, no, I'm sorry, the, uh, the maid is named Kali, which should be a warning <laughs> a little bit. But the maid is named Kali, and her, in the, in the text it says her mistress is named Vedahika. And Vedahika has this reputation for being very kind and gentle. And Kali starts to wonder, is this just because I do good work? And she says, perhaps I will test my mistress. And so she starts getting up later and later, and sure enough, Vedahika starts getting angry. And uh, as, as the Buddha tells the story, within a few days, Vedi, uh, Kali keeps saying, well, perhaps my mistress is actually not, not so kind and gentle. And then she keeps on extending the, uh, the test, as it were, of her mistress. And by the fourth day, uh, the wonderful Vedahika, who had this, this reputation in the community for being kind and gentle, is running after Kali with a rolling pin <laughs> and actually smashes her in the head. At that point, the Buddha intercedes and says, okay, okay, why was I telling this story? And he, he basically says that he was telling it because it's very important to see one's practice as including tests, that you can't really know where you are spiritually unless you're tested. And what do difficult people do? They test you <laughs> involuntarily. So, uh, so what, what the Buddha says to the, the monks and nuns who are listening, he says, some bhikkhu is extremely kind, extremely gentle, extremely peaceful. As long as disagreeable courses of speech do not touch him or her, but when disagreeable courses of speech touch him or her, then it can be understood whether that monk or nun is really kind or gentle. He says, I don't call a monk or nun kind and gentle unless they've really been tested. 
And so I, I was thinking that a, a friend of mine named um, Minduk, who lives not far from here, who is a, a teacher in the Vietnamese community in San Jose, for many years, even though he was a monk and the main teacher in this community, which is uh, called the Duc Vian uh, Temple. Some of you may have, may have been there. And Minduk said uh, that, well, for many years, he had worked with teenagers in trouble, even though he was a monk and the community might have supported him. But he went on, he was just, he's a beautiful person who, who should visit here, I, ho- I hope. And he even, he would um, work 30 hours a week working with teenagers and he would give his paychecks to the temple. You know, kind of the reverse of the usual uh, relationship between monks and nuns in the temple. And, he, and he is a, he's a Dharma heir of Thich Nhat Hanh, and Thich Nhat Hanh came through once. And he said, you know what? You're going out with these kids. They don't know who you are. They don't, they don't care. They, they, don't, you know, they don't care whether you're a monk or what, or a Buddhist or whatever. They don't even know what that is. They just care whether you're kind and wise and so forth. And Thich Nhat Hanh said to him, you know, he hadn't said this publicly, but it says, you know, a lot of the monks and nuns at our, at our monastery, they think they're wise. They think they're really developed spiritually. They haven't been tested like you have. I think you're really doing a very powerful practice of being there in the, in the world and being with difficult situations. So it's, it's a way to sort of reframe our practice, to really see that the difficult people can be uh, tremendous resources for us. And there's, a, there's a wonderful line in the book, uh, A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life by the Mahayana teacher Shantideva. This is something that uh, the Dalai Lama takes as his main text. And in this book, there's a lot of material on what uh, Shantideva calls taking one's enemies as the uh, basis for spiritual practice or part of the basis for spiritual practice. Shanti Davis says, this is from the 7th century, Therefore, just like treasure appearing in my house, without any effort on my behalf to obtain it, I should be happy to have an enemy, for he assists me in my conduct of awakening. I should be happy to have an enemy, for he assists me in my conduct of awakening. Now, what do we find when we actually look to the experience of difficult people? And this is something that I'll also invite you in the next week to actually bring mindfulness so that when a difficult person appears in your life, you just say, oh, time for practice. Let's look at what's here. And so what do we actually find? Now, I want to say before doing this, that before going in detail, that I think that working with difficult people is somewhat of an intermediate practice. I don't know if it's a beginning practice. I would say it's some, it could be a more intermediate or even advanced practice because we need to have a certain foundation of mindfulness to work with difficult people. Even though I think it's very possible to work with difficult people when one considers oneself at a beginning level. I think I did that kind of unknowingly at the beginning of my practice. I was working with Joseph Goldstein as a teacher and he gave me a line that said, if there's suffering... Where's the attachment? And I worked with every, I was excited. Oh, oh, I can work with my suffering and, and look at it. But there's something about this practice of working with difficult people 
that is an invitation for us to do something that's not what we usually do, which is to take some of our difficult experiences, even our suffering, as a starting point for mindfulness, as a starting point for practice. To take our, um, even our distress and our suffering as like a wake-up call. So that at a certain point in our practice, we actually have a certain interest in our suffering. It's a little bit of a reversal. Sometimes it, when we start meditation, we do meditation to get away from our suffering, to have peace, to have uh, relaxation and understanding. At a certain point, it may be when actually we're not suffering so much. Then we can take the moments of our suffering as interesting, as something to investigate, because when we go into them, we actually can know some of more carefully some of the patterns that actually bind us. So what do we actually find when we look at our experiences with difficult people? First of all, we find that what's difficult about difficult people is our experience of them. That's an important fact, that what's difficult about, our, about difficult people is that we have difficult experiences with them. Difficult experiences like anger, frustration, impatience, fear, and so forth. And with difficult people, we have them on a regular basis, somewhat chronically. So that when we're with... uh, So this is very important because what it means is that it's possible to look carefully at our experience because it's really our experiences that's what's difficult about difficult people in a deep sense, it's not the external person. And that doesn't mean at all that the difficult person doesn't bear a significant degree of responsibility for our experiences. But it's important to see that we can actually take what's difficult about them as our experiences of being with anger or a sense of betrayal or a sense of not being listened to or whatever. Again, it's not to say that there's not responsibility on their part. But it means that we can actually, as part of the work with difficult people, look at our own reactivity. So in many ways, we could say that being with difficult people is in part an invitation to study the patterns of our reactivity, because that's what we find with difficult people. We find the reactivity that leads us to basically... Um, get lost in some way, to get, to get lost in anger or fear or confusion or whatever. And that's what we seem to experience with difficult people. So we could say that our experience of difficult people, when we take it as practice, is an invitation for us to look deeply at our patterns of reactivity. It was an invitation to look for me to look at what there was that happened to me when I didn't feel listened to. And again, I, don't, I want to say that looking at my own reactivity might be part of the long-term way of working with difficult people. There might also be interpersonal or even social responses to the situation. But a key part and a part that we can really examine in our own practice, because often difficult people are not wanting to have dialogue with us, right? A lot of times, difficult people, when you say, well, 
I'm having a difficulty with you. Would you talk about it with me? That's an invitation to further difficulties. <laughs> and so, uh, and again, it's, but in the best of situations, we have people that we can both do our inner work with and we can also communicate and talk about the relational dimensions. So, but here I want to focus particularly on the personal work that we can do with difficult people. So we can see that what's difficult are the patterns of reactivity and that our encounters with difficult people in a way are invitations for us to become experts, further experts about our own reactivity, further experts about what happens when that person doesn't listen to me. Now, this takes a lot of mindfulness because what we seem to be able, what we seem to be able, what we seem to need to do is to study exactly what happened. So here I want to shift to the third part, the last part of my talk, which is to say, how might we practice with difficult people? And I want to name a few aspects of that and also weave in a little bit more about my own experience and some of the uh, question of what actually happens with difficult people. And I'll be saving some material for, for uh, next time. So the first thing to do when we're with difficult people or when we think we're going to be with difficult people is to form the intention that the situation could be a learning situation. I used to go to those meetings with this uh, unnamed president Uh, every two weeks. After a while, I used to take those days as my retreat days. (laughs) Seriously. And I used to say, okay, today I am going to be challenged. I'm going to be be given certain kinds of stuff coming at me that will tend to have me lose it. Okay. I will approach this with my maximum mindfulness. So I actually used to say, okay, you're eager to have more time for meditation. Guess what? (laughs) This is your time for meditation. So I used to, uh, I had to take uh, the BART system to go to the, uh, the place where we would have these meetings. So I would, I would be on the BART. I would do mindfulness practice. I'd do loving kindness practice with the people on the BART. I'd do walking meditation from the, for the 15 minute walk from the BART to the office. And after a while, I mean, this, this is after I had already studied myself how I was losing it a lot. And I did have the benefit of an extended relationship with a difficult person. But what I, <laughs> uh, what I found myself wanting to do or doing was forming the intention that I will take this as a chance to learn. I will take this situation as a chance to learn. And furthermore, I will try to keep those intentions strong. I will remember that intention prior to the meeting. I will, you know, and I will strengthen my mindfulness. I will, I will do what we could call building a cont- kind of container that gives us some support for being with a difficult person. For you, this might be to talk with friends about the dynamic, not to analyze why the difficult person is so difficult, which a lot of us spend a good deal of our time doing, but rather to form the intention, how can I learn from this? How can I, in particular, develop mindfulness? Because I think what we have to do is to learn how to start recognizing the trigger that brings our automatic reaction. And this is is some of the most difficult part of this work because we have to somehow 
be really attentive and study in detail our, our, our patterns of where we get lost. And typically in these situations, we will find that there is some trigger. The person not listening to me, that, for what, that leads me to, to suddenly just go off in judgment, right, with that particular situation. We each have our own variety of that. Someone will do something or say something, and we will just go off, you know, the way that someone might give a sarcastic comment. And we just immediately give a sarcastic comment back. You know, a lot of our time is like that. There's usually something happens and immediately we go off in reactivity. What we have to do over time is to slow down the process so that we begin to see how the reactivity starts. That's why our own regular mindfulness practice is totally necessary as like laboratory training to study our own reactivity because we have to be able to study our reactivity so we can actually see trigger, being triggered, and then the reaction and study that so that we can actually find that typically when there's a trigger, like the person not listening to me, there's actually some pain that I feel, that actually, but typically I'm, unco- I'm unconscious, I'm not aware of it. There's a trigger, I feel some pain, and then I instantly go into what we could call a defense mechanism, some kind of reaction. We have to slow it down. I had to slow down my interaction so I could actually say, I could actually feel I'm not being listened to, ouch, that hurts. And then to be able to study the way that I usually react to that, to the point where I could feel the pain and then know, oh, I have a few choices here. I can go off in reactivity or I can do something else. And I found that the key to this was actually being in touch with the experience of pain that happens with difficult people. Because normally I think we're not. Normally we're in a kind of automatic state where someone does something difficult and we just go off like a billiard ball, just bouncing off a corner. And so to bring mindfulness, we slow it down, we begin to be aware, and my experience is this takes a lot of repetition. We have to just do this over and over again. This is not a one-time practice. That After the end of this talk, you will just go out, maybe some of you will have an encounter with a difficult person this evening. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you will go home and your significant other will say, you went to meditate and hear a talk and you didn't do the dishes or some version of that, right? And all the wonderful peace and perspective and wisdom will will be in the past. And you will find yourself reactive. And over time, that's that's why it's so fortunate to have a difficult person with whom there's a long-term relationship. Because, you, because the only way to study this is to do it by repetition. This is, if, this is what we do in this mindfulness practice. It's perhaps not advertised you know, outside, but we watch the same patterns over and over again, and we don't, we don't learn by seeing it once or twice. We learn by seeing the same pattern like 100 times or even 5,000 times. So if you don't like that method, go find another one. <laughs> Because that's, that's what we do here. Uh, and it works. That's the thing. That, that, uh, 
attending to the patterns over and over again, and particularly trying to see all the different steps that lead from trigger to pain to reaction, particularly seeing if there's some pain with our automatic reactions, we start to disentangle everything. And we then start to be aware. It doesn't mean that there's not pain, but we start to have the movement from pain to reaction not be automatic and unconscious. That's why this practice works with this. It stops being automatic. And I can be there and not feel listened to and say, oh, this is, oh. And, And I can feel, oh, it's painful, I'm sad. And I can start responding in a different way. Rather than withdraw, I can start saying, I'm not sure you heard what I said. <laughs> or something like that. That's not, a, that's not a, a reactive response necessarily. That can come more out of compassion for myself, for the other person, and some wisdom in our response. So I think I'll stop here, open it up to any uh, discussion, and then uh, there's some more things that I'll um, talk about next week that can be done on this, on this foundation. So thank you very much. Please. you're entirely right. It's not at all guaranteed. Um, but you're right. In a certain sense, it takes, the, um, it takes two to tango. And it, it's actually pretty interesting because it can, it can tell us that even though we may, as it were, be the person who receives aggression, we still have a part to play in the conflict, which is a significant fact. And that Yes, it's been my experience often that if I uh, don't give a reaction, that it's very hard for the other uh, party, as it were, in the conflict to continue in the same way. You could say it's a kind of unilateral disarmament, something like that. And it's, um, it's very interesting. Uh, it's very interesting what can happen. Yeah, and the other person can actually shift the behavior. The behavior can shift without them knowing what's going on simply because we're not feeding whatever it is on their side. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. Please, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just broke up? Yeah. Oh, my. I think yeah. I just lost all my opportunities. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is probably what pushed me deeper. Yeah. Into my life. 
knowing. Yeah. And maybe it was because I wanted to just prove that I was morally right. And so the more I meditated, you know, the better yeah. person I was, you know, to be a great talk. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, I think I have... One thing to say, which is both good news and bad news, there's someone else out there for you. (laughs) Please, in the the back. sort of further um, nuancing of, of, the, of the talk and discussion to, to go into that issue. And it's an important one for me working with Buddhist Peace Fellowship and, you know, looking into questions of social change and responding to oppression. And I think, I think it's actually very relevant for what you, the example you give and, and also wider social change issues. Because I'm not sure if the people that you're referring to are actually doing the practice that I'm referring to. Because that would because it's not so much the outward behavior that is what we're looking for, but it's the inner work of really looking at one's reactivity. And so it's really to see how am I it so it could be it could be an unconscious automatic reactive pattern with a difficult person just to uh, let that person have his or her way, right? And not to actually respond. That, that, I think, would be one somewhat automatic, unconscious way of working with a difficult person. So I'm, I'm, I don't want to equate uh, what I'm saying with a lack of response and, and a lack of, perhaps a lack of very uh, full response, which could mean uh, ending the situation or... Um, in the case of social change, could mean actually responding with, uh, you know, a movement to change a situation. Uh, but the, the key is whether there's the inner reactivity. And that's something that one can investigate. It's, and, and in some situations, maybe another nuance would be, in some situations where there's uh, violence or where there's um, something very, uh, not just difficult, but overwhelming going on, then I think I want to make that distinction between a difficult person and a, and a situation that's overwhelming. And where there's an overwhelming situation, uh, I'm not particularly suggesting this practice. Then the best thing might just be to get out of that situation. Yeah. 
Ja. Ja. How did I do that? Ja. 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 Ja, you're welcome. Um, please, ja. Yeah, yeah. And, and saying, you know, what, what did I do wrong? Yeah. Um, well, what's wrong with me? Hmm. And um, I think it's a thin line there sometimes. Yeah. And not just examining and inquiring what the, what the feeling is. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I that. No, it's a really, I think, so, so it's, it's a similar point, really. It's, and I, I don't mean at all to suggest this practice as a, a reason for passivity, lack of response, or or uh, not acting in a strong way, you know, and uh, actually connected with uh, Shantideva, even though he says it's wonderful to have an enemy for one's practice, also in the Mahayana tradition, there are many, there are actually some of the bodhisattva vows are actually to intervene where there are difficult people, or destructive particularly, to intervene in destructive situations and actually change the situations. Part of the bodhisattva vow. So, but, but you're really asking how do we look at the subtleties between doing this practice and tending to blame ourselves or to um, maybe, I don't know, be overly, overly inward? It's certainly a danger of this practice. And um, I think the, the key would be, I mean, this is where one has to study it. Self-blaming is a form of reactivity. You know, again, uh, just as I think that um, trying to rationalize a situation can be a form of reactivity, because I think it's, it's, it's a form of covering over. The, the key here in, this, in what I'm talking about as a form of practice is actually to be very careful about the, what we could call the different kinds of defense mechanisms. That, because I... Th- I think that most of these are a cover over of a certain kind of pain that we're feeling. And, and rationalization is just as much a defense mechanism as blaming oneself or blaming others. And the key is to actually start to see how there is actually pain beneath the reactivity. But the reactivity can, can take, I think that uh, sometimes I like to think that um, when we have painful experiences, we can be, we're reactive, and the react, reactivity takes two broad forms. One is blaming others, and the other is blaming ourselves. And both of them are forms of reactivity. Yeah. Please. A very different view yeah. experiences. Clearly, it's different on the depth of the relationship with that difficult person. Yeah. Um, dealing with a broad base of people in a large healthcare institution yeah. with people who are in crisis, sick, yeah. tired, yeah. and after about 20 years of taking care of difficult people in difficult situations, I don't blame them. Yeah. I don't blame myself. I listen. Yeah. 
And sometimes that long-term listening after multiple sessions or appointments or whatever turns around and they begin to listen. Yeah. Um, it was the not taking it personally else one couldn't be a kid. Yeah. But it is different than a long-term personal relationship, although mm-hmm. these relationships can be long. Um, I just find not to blame. Yeah. It's, I think the dynamics would be pretty similar because it's sort of it's a long-term relationship with with a type of difficult person, right? That that just you that you meet, you know, and maybe most of us have something like that in our work. Yeah. Let me take um, take one more question, and then I think we're at we're at about nine. I think I could go on for another long time, but I, I'm, I've been told that we should probably end, and those who want to stay could stay. Yeah. Um, recognize that it's a really different thing to cool out and think about, take time and think about what is the right choice to make here when in fact you've already hooked me and I'm angry or I'm feeling uh, very defensive yeah. or very blaming. Yeah. That my ability to think straight That's right. is uh, seriously compromised. I yeah. Say. Yeah. And it, and it certainly it seems to me has to be um, one of the first things to, to recognize is that uh oh this is this is tight. Yeah. Hard. Yeah. That that's helpful, uh, because really what I think what I'm suggesting is and I if I if I were to have more time I could go into more detail, there's kind of a developmental sequence when we do this work. And you're right, near the beginning, we may just notice that we're lost. And that may be what, and that's big. To say I'm lost when I'm lost is major mindfulness practice, really. Because there's a development, there is a developmental sequence. And first to set the intention, and maybe this is a way to summarize somewhat, first to set the intention then, then again, it depends on the um, sort of intensity of the situation. Some, some things that are less uh, forceful, we may actually notice more easily. But something that I think everyone could identify with what you're talking about, that a lot of the situations with difficult people, we will only notice that we're reactive after a while. But I think if we keep sustaining that and keep noticing it, that's sort of, that's a major step. Another thing to do that I recommend that is uh, used often um, in raising children is to take timeouts, is to actually have the consciousness when we're feeling ourselves reactive, just to uh, take a timeout. I do this as a major practice when I go to meetings and I get, I find myself reactive. I go to the bathroom. And it's okay to do it multiple times in a meeting. No one really checks. They don't. <laughs> they don't. It's not socially good etiquette to sort of going a lot to the bathroom you know, in the meeting. And it's a wonderful technique, actually. I'm, I'm actually both humorous and quite serious that it, because it's the principle. This is sort of a way. If, if you wanted to know how do I work with this? Okay, there's someone who triggers you. Take it. You know, first notice that you're triggered. First, have the intention. Notice you're triggered. 
If you notice yourself triggered and you have the option, take a time out and come back, center yourself somewhat and come back and see if there's another option. And then just keep studying it in that way. And over time, and also, I mean, there are, I could say more, there are individual practices that one can do. Probably if you're having a difficult uh, experience with someone, it will probably come up in your meditations. Okay? And you will, there though, you have suspended the link with action. And you can actually, you'll, but you'll still notice yourself angry in the meditation. And you can actually do something that would, you can actually, okay, you know, you notice yourself angry and spinning out reasons why the other person did that and why the other person should be in therapy and, you know, and, you know, or it's surely that, you know, the bad childhood and maybe you should really have compassion, but the de- person's definitely screwed up. <laughs> and you can notice your mind going on like that and you can do the same sort of technique. You can say, okay, what's, what's this like? What's happening? And you can actually do a practice of saying, let me feel my heart. What's actually happening right now when there's anger or something like that? And sometimes one can feel, oh, I felt, um, I didn't like how I was treated. I felt sad. I felt, um, um, I felt, I felt hurt or whatever, whatever the language that we would use is. And you can study that in our meditation. So maybe that's a fourth aspect, you know, intention, notice when you're lost, take timeouts, study the same dynamics in your, in your practice. And over time, and, and also use help, use mentors, use groups to help sort of disentangle. And I don't want to at all suggest that this is, a, because of the fact that we're doing this for two weeks, that this is a two-week practice. <laughs> okay, I think you get that. This is, I'm describing, you know, this is, okay, any difficult people are there because it's deep stuff for us and it's going to take some time. So as they say in some of the cartoons for meditation, bring a sack lunch. <laughs> you know, and, and really uh, be there for the long haul. But it's really possible to just make these few uh, interventions and each of them will have an impact. But check with friends, discuss this with mentors and teachers you know, and it's, it's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful process to engage in. And I think over time, and it may be, we may be talking about years, uh, one can really learn tremendously. Not be such a difficult person oneself. <laughs> so maybe let me, uh, let me stop there. Do we end with some kind of a dedication? Let me, let me just end with uh, one minute to do an ending. That'll help be a transition for next time. So coming back to one's body, one's breath, and letting be present what has been most helpful or important from the evening, from the sitting perhaps, or the talk and discussion. Not too many things, maybe the one or two most important things And if there are any intentions that come out of this evening, in particular, any intentions for working with this theme in the next week, then let that intention intention be set right now. Make an intention to yourself. This is what I intend to do. You might even think concretely, how will I give support for this intention? Might be to remember the intention every morning. Or remember the intention before you're 
about to engage with the person who might be difficult. And finally, let us uh, dedicate the fruits of the evening and of our practice to all beings, knowing that we practice not just for ourselves, but for other beings. May we give the fruits of our work, the fruits of our practice to others for their benefit, for their awakening, for their healing, for their freedom.